The following is a presentation of Genesis. Genesis is a place where you are invited to begin, belong, and believe. To find out more, visit us on the web at genesisthejourney.com. Hey, last week um, uh, there was a lot happening um, uh, in the Gulf Coast region, and uh, I spent uh, some time asking you to pray and to pray for uh, Hurricane Gustav that uh, uh, hit and wreaked uh, some havoc down in uh, the New Orleans area and just that general area. And it's been a pretty powerful week. I don't know if you keep up with the news, but uh, two more hurricanes have come. And uh, this most recent one, uh, Hurricane Ike, uh, has leveled uh, Turks and Caicos in the Caribbean and is uh, headed straight for uh, New Orleans. So uh, one of our um, uh, friends here from the Genesis community is um, actually down in New Orleans right now. He took off last uh, Wednesday or Thursday to go and be part of uh, the relief effort. Uh, if you get the Genesis Weekly, one of the things that I put in the weekly this past week was that uh, we'd like to take up a collection uh, to send down to Manny uh, and be part of um, helping to support uh, the two biggest needs that they have right now. Uh, and by the way, there's a lot of needs, but uh, is canned, canned food and uh, water. And so any money that uh, we're able to collect tonight as a community to send down to uh, Manny and the church and... Um, uh, the recovery team that he's working with uh, will go to those very two specific things of, of um, uh, water and canned goods. So uh, I want to uh, just pause like we did last week and uh, pray for that. Um, uh, from what Manny is telling me, uh, and this is his fifth trip down to Katrina land, uh, they're still devastated from Katrina, and now this one has come in and uh, has just caused a lot more problems. So uh, I want to pause as a community, ask us to pray, and uh, just pray for what's happening in that uh, entire uh, Caribbean region uh, and headed uh, towards the Gulf Coast region. Um, but I would ask you and challenge you uh, uh, to give uh, tonight to be generous, uh, whether it's with five bucks you came in with or 50 bucks you came in with, uh, that money is going to be put uh, to good use to help some people who are in, in need of it. So uh, let me pray and uh, we'll, we'll continue on. Father, I uh, specifically uh, remember praying uh, last week that uh, you would quiet uh, this storm, that you would, uh, in many ways, uh, this storm would come to a place of peace and um, uh, the winds uh, would uh, find a place of, of quiet and just calmness. And uh, Father, you were in good to answer and uh, there was a storm that was uh, Category 4 that um, uh, was downgraded very quickly as it headed uh, towards the coast. And we just give you thanks for that, that the, the damage was minimal. Uh, but Lord, we know that uh, there is still a lot of damage in that region and uh, people who are now suffering from Hurricane Hannah and Ike that have uh, hit already. Uh, Father, people now, their lives are forever changed. Um, uh, people who are homeless, uh, without food, without shelter, without just clean drinking water. Um, so Father, uh, would you please be uh, a good father, a good shepherd, and take care of these people that have, uh, their lives have been uh, dramatically changed because of these storms. And uh, Father, there's another storm raging uh, headed towards um, uh, New Orleans, and uh, God, I pray that you would quiet that storm down. Uh, God, I pray that you would quiet that storm down. Father, I pray that uh, you would use uh, any of the gifts and offerings uh, that we would uh, collect in this place tonight, uh, and God, you would just multiply that. Uh, you would multiply that a hundredfold so that uh, people uh, would be blessed and people would be encouraged to know uh, not that just a community here cares, but ultimately uh, the God of the universe cares. 
And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we uh, have our vases, vases at the back. And uh, if you'd like to give some, uh, just a cash gift or a check, uh, make the check out to Genesis with Gustav in the memo. Uh, and we've put some envelopes back there if you just want to put some cash. Uh, and that money is going to be sent uh, first thing tomorrow uh, to Manny, who's uh, going to be there for another week. Um, we're in the midst of, um, welcome to Genesis, by the way. My name's Michael. And uh, if you're here for the very first time, I'm glad that uh, you came. I'm not sure how you found us, but I'm glad you did. Um, and we are in the midst of uh, a series called DNA. I want to invite my friend John Wettstein, Dr. John Wettstein. He's a professor at Harvard. And um, <laughs> works at, um, uh, with Harvard, but uh, specifically in the Cancer Research Institute at uh, Mass General. And uh, he is our resident expert on all things science and all things very specifically uh, related to, uh, to DNA. And um, we spent the last two weeks um, talking about um, image and that uh, you and I have been created, uh, fashioned, and formed in the image of God, uh, that you are an image bearer of God. And so we took a look at what does that mean, uh, that you and I are image bearers of God, and how might we live our lives uh, in the reflection of who we have been created. Uh, John was with us, I think, um, two weeks ago, right? And uh, asked him some very profound questions of what does DNA stand for? That was our first question to John. Anyone remember? Wow. Wow. Teacher's pet sucking up. What's up with that? Um, so, John, just give us a, a refresher. Uh, um, tonight, uh, first question I wanted to throw your way was, uh, DNA in its most pure, healthy form, uh, what ultimately does it do and how does it function? What does it create? Can you hear me? Yeah, yep. Okay. So uh, first, uh, I just want to remind everybody what the DNA is. It's basically uh, four different sugars that match up. And what I want you to see in this is that um, you have an A and a T uh, that match. So what that tells you is that every one of those connect together. So an A matches a T, a C matches a G, and it's always the way it is. So it's the combination of those four sugars that make up everything. So what you see on one side is an exact mirror image of the other side. So if you look at the next picture, what you can see here is DNA basically is the length of four trips between here and the sun. But it's compressed down into your cells, which you can basically not see. And it's all compressed into these things called chromosomes. So up in the very right top corner, you can see those are chromosomes from the average human being that you can see. So those are perfectly normal, perfectly healthy, and that's what it looks like. So all this information, which basically is important, which gives rise to every organism that's found on planet Earth that's alive, is found with those four sugars put in a very specific order that they're able to read. So the next slide basically sets up exactly what you need to realize about DNA is that, in fact, it actually has itself as a mirror image. So as I said, an A matches a T, a G matches a C. So what does this mean? It means that it's actually a mirror image. So if we take one strand, it can duplicate and give you the other strand. So as you can kind of see with the picture of the chef looking in the mirror, it's always there for reflection. It's always there to help create itself again. And so there's the template of everything that needs to be found in every organism that's alive. If um, DNA is uh, corrupted, uh, what happens um uh, ultimately to the body? What's the impact uh, that a corrupted DNA uh, would have on our body? So um, one thing about it being a mirror image, it's important to kind of understand what it does. 
So what you can see here um, is an example of how this all works. So it's nice to have a mirror image of your DNA because what ends up happening is it ends up making a copy of itself. And when it makes a copy of itself, it can go from a one cell stage. And what you're actually looking at there is actually warm embryos. But it's going from a one cell and it divides into two different cells. So the exact same genetic material is duplicated and then duplicated again. So this is how everything goes from in development and occurs. So one of the very important prop properties of the DNA is that it is actually a template. You can kind of think of it as a book. And then, therefore, then it's translated over into other things that the cell is able to do. And the next picture, the other important part about DNA is it's not only a book, so we can kind of think of it as the Bible, for example. It's a written text. It never changes. And therefore, then what happens is information is transcribed off of that DNA. It's like a note. It's passed out into the cell. The cell then interprets it. And that interpretation of that information is what will give rise to your skin, to hair, to lungs, liver, so on and so forth, or give rise to a human versus, say, a worm. And it's that information as it's interpreted, that's what becomes very important. So as I have indicated, it's similar to, you can kind of think of it as today, you have the Bible, which you read, okay? You interpret it, you play it through your life, and you, through your actions, interpretation of the Bible is exactly what, is kind of like the, what the cell does with the DNA. So when Michael asked me what happens, how does, you know, what, you know, what goes wrong? How does DNA look? Well, you can see in the next slide is this. Here's your normal chromosomes. This is from an average person. So this is what everybody's chromosomes look like under normal conditions. And what you can see in the right side is basically a crystal structure of that chromosome and how it looks. But the next slide, if you look where the arrow is at the top, you notice it kind of looks like one is totally missing a piece. It's just hanging out there by itself. You look down in the far right corner, you see two that are kind of stuck together. So those two X's are fused. So this is basically broke or damaged DNA. So that would be an example of normal, what you just saw, which everything looks like a bunch of X's. And then in this case, then you have a damaged or broken DNA. And the important part about it is, as I mentioned, they're mirror images, right? DNA serves as a mirror image to itself. So if you damage your DNA, one side can always serve as a template to repair or fix it. So for example, it can serve as kind of a foundation for the other strand to be rebuilt again. Uh, how did it break? <laughs> so <laughs> how does that happen? Like it just a uh, little thing broke. So it work? the interesting thing about how this all happens is this. There are intrinsic factors, so natural processes within the cell will result in damage that you're able to handle, then there's extrinsic factors. So um, let's think of it this way. Gustav would be a extrinsic factor. An intrinsic factor is you make a decision to drink too much drive and you actually have an accident and hurt someone. So it's that same kind of thing. So that's exactly how DNA is dealt with. There are extrinsic factors such as radiation exposure to somebody, and then there's the intrinsic factors which are the byproduct of, say, a toxic chemical that one ingests. So it's that those kind of circumstances which can cause mutation, cause damage, cause alterations to the DNA. Mm. And then therefore what ends up happening is when that happens, say you lose a fragment of your DNA, you lose that template, you lose that foundation for the whole you know, book, you lose that whole page. What ends up happening is it can be two things. If it's a page that's not so important, it's just background that is filled in before and after, then it's not that tragic. But if it's a page, it's very important. 
Say it's the whole New Testament that's missing. Then what happens is you miss the very fundamental piece to the whole puzzle. And so that can lead into severe defects. So for example, in the next slide, this would be some examples of just how it happens. These are some diseases that occur. The first one is actually a C. elegant or a worm embryo. And basically you can see on one side it's dividing normally, you can see its cells, and then if you look on the other side, we've taken one gene out and the whole thing becomes a mess. Doesn't know what it's doing, the embryo's lost. If you look on the far right, you see a child with a cleft lip. This is a mutation in a series of genes that will result in this abnormality, which can be surgically fixed. Then on the bottom, you have another case where people have too much of this one particular gene, and well, in this case, we're showing it in a mouse, but the truth is it can result in tumors in human beings. So the the, it's important to maintain the balance, and by altering or losing or gaining these genes or changing this template, um, it can result in disease. If um, DNA is, uh, once it becomes corrupted or polluted, um, is it possible that it could be uh, restored back to normal operating health? Like if it's, if it's broken, can it ultimately be fixed and completely restored? So um, that's the cool part about it, and I keep reiterating, you know, four, four nucleotides, four sugars make up the whole thing. I've reiterated that you kind of have this uh, duplication of itself. So what you can see is this in the next, in the slide here, the point I want to make is that damage itself can cause a very specific alteration or change. By having an exact duplication of itself, a copy, a template that's translated on the other side, if one strand is damaged or a region is damaged, the benefit is it can be used to remake that template. Mm -hmm. So it can re provide a foundation to rewrite that other side or right or wrong. In other cases, if say, for example, there's too much damage, something's gone on and it's a major catastrophic event, then there's another mechanism. And this other mechanism requires that it's the template itself providing or resulting in the production of these things that both support the DNA in the sense that if too much damage occurs, it can help fix it. The other aspect of it is there's these surveillancers. These, there's a backbone or something that oversees that the template itself won't be damaged to beyond recognition in the beginning. So you have both a repair as well as something that provides a foundational support and helps protect it. That's awesome. Um, that was really cool learning that when I asked uh, John uh, just earlier, we were talking about things that um, I had no clue if, uh, if DNA, once DNA is broken, is busted, if it can be uh, restored. And uh, as we'll talk about uh, tonight, um, what happens when the image of God uh, is marred because of sin? Uh, can it ultimately be restored uh, in our life? So uh, John is uh, more than happy and willing to talk to you guys uh, afterwards. If you just had some questions, if you wanted help getting into Harvard, um, just kidding. Uh, but John, thank you very much for uh, sharing with Thanks. us tonight. If you want to go to a real school called Ohio State, talk to me afterwards. <laughs> go Crimson, just kidding. Um, many of you guys will remember about 10 years ago, uh, there was a, um, uh, a horrific uh, crime uh, committed in Columbine, uh, in Littleton, Colorado at Columbine High School. Uh, this coming April, this will mark the 10-year anniversary of uh, that massacre that took uh, many young lives and uh, injured a lot of people. And in many ways, uh, a lot of school shootings. That uh, wasn't the first and only, but after that, there was uh, a few dozen, actually, that took place, uh, some on a large scale, some on a small scale. And I remember after Columbine, most of you guys um, 
Uh, most everyone in the room was alive in 1990, so um, you should remember that. And um, uh, Larry King, uh, the CNN um, interviewer correspondent, was doing an interview with Billy Graham. If you're not familiar with Billy Graham, he's uh, uh, an evangelist and has uh, done many incredible things for the gospel. And uh, he was interviewing Billy Graham, and uh, he asked Billy Graham this question, What's wrong with the world? How could such a thing as Columbine happen? Everyone else was blaming video games and saying such things like violence begets violence and that we live in a culture desensitized to the beauty of human life and uh, the sanctity of creation. But Billy Graham, uh, in answering the question, what's wrong with the world, Billy Graham did not blame video games. Billy Graham looked at Larry King in the eye and said this, Thousands of years ago, a young couple in love lived in a garden called Eden, and God placed a tree in the garden and told them, not to eat from the tree. One decision, uh, two people, and humanity has been forever altered since that one decision. And uh, as I was just mentioning a few minutes ago, uh, we have been created and formed and fashioned in the image of God. But when sin entered into the world, uh, that image of God has been marred, uh, but it has not been lost. And as um, in many ways, as John was talking about, uh, DNA can be restored uh, the image of God can be restored in us as well. Um, but sin, uh, like DNA uh, that is um, malfunctioning, DNA that is uh, corrupted or polluted, uh, has uh, severe consequences uh, on the human body. And uh, much like that, sin uh, in our life will have devastating consequences to uh, not only our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves and a relationship with a community that we are in relationship with. Um, it's interesting, as I was thinking about, um, you know, typically if, if you're not familiar with coming to church and uh, the two big stereotypes are, gosh, I'm going to go to church and they're, all they're going to do is tell me I'm a sinner and tell me to give my money. And uh, tonight I'm accomplishing both because um, I'm telling you to give money to uh, the hurricane relief. And uh, we're going to talk about a very uh, sensitive, uh, difficult subject. Uh, but as I was thinking about that, it might be hard for you, it might be uncomfortable for you, it might be uncomfortable for me. Uh, but as I was really pondering this, uh, this is a subject that God absolutely hates. We think it's easy for us to talk about, or difficult for us to talk about sin. Uh, but one of the things we're going to get into tonight is uh, sin is just such an affront uh, to who God is. And so as we're talking about something that you might want to squirm in your seats, I can only imagine what the, the creator of the heavens and the earth uh, thinks about sin because ultimately the end of the story was uh, he gave his one and only son to restore, uh, to redeem, and to reconcile humanity back to a right relationship with him. So this is not a subject that uh, is easy for us to think about, and sin is a huge, huge subject. So tonight... Uh, my hope is to cover just some very basic questions uh, about the subject of sin as it relates to our DNA. Uh, the three questions is just very specifically, what is sin? Uh, the second one is, what's the big deal with sin? Ultimately, who cares? Why does it ultimately matter? And then uh, the third question we would finish with is, what do I do? How I, what would be an appropriate uh, response to sin? Because uh, I could either walk away from here saying, just be indifferent to it and say, I don't really care, or we could walk away with a totally different attitude, mindset, mentality tonight uh, in how we understand and view sin. Uh, I want to invite Kyla to come back up, welcome her.
tonight, today, is Kyla's birthday, so happy birthday to you. Um, yes, yes. She is, uh, should we tell them? Okay, 25, actually. It was a good guess. She is t- 25, mother of three, and... Um, so uh, I'm very appreciative. Uh, Kyla was here with us last week. Um, she'll be here obviously tonight and um, uh, two weeks from, or three weeks from now when we talk about uh, uh, community and a message called Tribal and then talking about mission. Uh, Kyla will uh, revisit uh, and be back with us. So let me uh, again pray for us and uh, we're going to dive into uh, the story. Uh, Father, uh, it's awkward, hard, difficult um, for us to talk about sin, to think about sin, to even Uh, consider ourselves as sinners. Uh, But Lord, this is a subject that uh, caused you great pain because it separated uh, you from the ones that you love. It separated you from the ones that you created to be in a perfect, uh, healthy relationship with you. So Father, tonight as we uh, talk about a a subject that is uh, uh, just incredibly uh, difficult, I pray that you would give us some wisdom, some understanding, some insight into who we are, Uh, who you created us to be, and ultimately who you are and how we might respond to you, a holy, a perfect, a beautiful God. We pray that uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let me ask you a question, and you're going to, a little group participation here. Um, How would you define it? How would you define sin? What words, which adjectives uh, would you use to describe, define sin? Throw them out. Disobedience, that's one. Falling short, rebellion, my way, missing the mark. You've already talked twice, John. Sorry, you're only allowed <laughs> once. Uh, keep, give me a couple more. Anger, okay. What is it? Gratification. Lives, lies, okay, pride, hate, all right, five more, rapid fire, here we go, now that I put a limit on it, you're like, huh, is it work, not, thanks for coming tonight, Kyla, have a good birthday, (laughs) Um, uh, separates us from God, what? Imperfection, greed, all right, one more, shout it out, arrogance, <laughs> arrogance yes, pride, um, it's, uh, uh, those are all uh, good, helpful, uh, accurate descriptions of sin, um, but uh, uh, rather than, I guess, give a, a, a definition, I wanted to read a story, and uh, it's the you know, it's interesting. This is in Genesis chapter 3. We only have two chapters in the entire uh, uh, book of Scripture where it portrays what man's relationship with God was supposed to look like. Uh, the rest of the thousands of chapters of Scripture detail uh, what sin has done uh, in humanity and what sin ultimately has done to separate us from God. We only have two chapters in the entire 66 books of, uh, of all of Scripture that paint this picture of what uh, we were created to, to be in perfect relationship with God. 
Genesis chapter 3, if you have a Bible, you can flip there. Uh, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we give these away to you as uh, a gift. If um, you don't have a Bible, uh, you can take one right now if you'd like. The fall of man, this is what uh, chapter 3 has been entitled. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Pretty powerful verse here in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it as well. That's uh, the story of... um, uh, the first two that were created and the first two um, that made a, a willful decision uh, to say we're not going to pay attention to what God has to say. Uh, God made very clear to Adam and to Eve, uh, you can have, you are free. You are free to eat from any of these trees, eat from the fruit of the land, eat from anything and everything. But there is one tree in the middle of the garden. Uh, that tree is out of bounds. It's off limits. And there is uh, the serpent, the talking serpent, often been characterized as this is Satan. Um, Came and he he only said two things. He only asked two questions. But two questions that he asked um, sent humanity into a tailspin. I've often thought, like, you know, God said, do not eat from this tree. And it was very specifically a fruit tree. And I'm thinking I would have been fine because I'm not really interested in eating fruit from trees. So I'm thinking like it would have had to have been, I don't know, maybe some uh, steak tacos from Chipotle that had to have been hanging off that tree. Because if God said don't eat from that fruit tree, I'd be like, sweet, no problem. I've got no issues. I won't touch the fruit. Uh, but for some reason, this tree looked so desirable uh, to Eve uh, and to Adam that they decided to go ahead and eat from that tree. Um, Ultimately, the enemy, the serpent, Satan, um, asked them two questions, asked, Adam, or asked Eve very two specific questions. And uh, in many ways, um, he was trying to deceive her. He was trying to trick her, and uh, she fell for it. And ultimately, what the serpent was doing was trying to plant a seed in uh, Eve's heart, in Eve's mind, that God is holding out on you. And because God's holding out on you, you cannot trust him. If he is holding out on you with this, can you only imagine what he's holding out on you uh, with other things that you don't even know about? And she started to think to herself, wow, maybe there's some, some logic there. If God is holding out on me here, what other things might he be holding out on me with? And so she began to believe, ultimately, this lie that uh, God's goodness was called into question. She believed, began to believe that God is not good because he is ultimately holding out on me. Now, ultimately, the sin has nothing to do with the fruit, per se. It has to do with the decision that Eve made in her heart to say, I know what God said, and I'm not going to pay attention to it. It was a decision that was made where she said, I'm going to do my own 
thing. I think someone said that in describing sin. Ultimately, it was, I'm going to rebel against what God has said, and I will make a willful decision, a willful choice to say, I will pursue what looks good to me. And what looks good to me, I have no idea why, was a piece of fruit. So sin, ultimately, is just uh, our will coming into conflict with the divine will, saying, I'm going to do my own thing. And what I wanted to say is, sin, ultimately, it's a choice. No one makes you sin. Okay, like the serpent didn't scare her. You know, he wasn't trying to, he, she wasn't possessed by the serpent. He wasn't trying to freak her out or force her to do something. He just came along with two questions. No one makes you sin. It's your choice. It's my choice. It's our choice to say, I'm going to do my own thing. There might be outside circumstances that make it look a little bit more attractive. There might be internal struggles that you're leaning towards one way, but ultimately, if you sin, it's your choice. And what I want you to hear is, you don't have to. You don't have to make a decision to say, I'm going to do my own thing. I will rebel against God. I will go my own way. You do not have to sin. It's not your duty in life to sin. It's not your job in life to sin. You don't have to do it. I know a lot of us, and I've been there many times myself, I feel compelled that that's just what I have to do. I, I can't control myself. I can't help it. And so I just give in and say, forget what God said. I'm going to pay attention to what Michael said, and I will pursue and do, ultimately, my own thing. Genesis uh, 4-7, um, God is trying to convince uh, a young man named Cain not to kill his brother. He's trying to convince this guy, Cain, do not respond in anger and do not respond in sin. And he says this, If you do what is right, you will, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. The point is, sin wants to master us. But you know, the fact that God says to Cain, you can master it. We don't have to be controlled by sin, these desires that just say, I want to do my own thing, go my own way. I just want to make clear, I know I'm repeating myself a hundred times, you don't have to sin. You don't have to have a rebellious spirit, a rebellious heart, and just say, God, shake your fist at him and say, I'm going to do my own thing. If um, uh, you wonder why sometimes we sin, why sometimes it looks so good, is um, ultimately we all want to be satisfied. We want to have true fulfillment in our life. And there's something about us that says, I'm not sure if I will be completely, uh, totally, uh, wholly satisfied in God and in God alone. John Piper, one of um, a favorite author of mine, uh, kind of said this, sin is what we do when our hearts are not satisfied in God alone. And so the lie that we're told uh, and often believe is that life with God on the narrow road is hard and unhappy, whereas sin is pleasant and satisfying. I just, that's not true. That's absolutely a lie. It's absolutely not true. Uh, before I became a Christian, I remember... Anytime I'd hear the word, hear church people, you know, I don't know whether it was priests or TV evangelists that I encountered or whatever, I would always hear the word sinner and just kind of get mad. I would think, you know, you don't even know me. 
I'm a good person. I am not a sinner. Because to me, the word sinner, the first thing I thought of was like a criminal or, you know, an axe murderer, a serial killer or a rapist or something. And I would get angry. You don't know me. I'm a good person. I'm not like that. It's funny. I was telling Kyla this. I've heard the same thing growing up in uh, church. People are like, I'm not a sinner. I'm not like a terrorist, axe murderer, serial killer. And I was just like, why do people always compare themselves to like the absolutely worst of humanity? Like no one ever compares them. I'm not like my neighbor Joe over here. I'm not like, you know, Mother Teresa. No one ever compares themselves. They always just shoot for the bottom of the barrel. I'm not like Hitler. Like making the statement, I'm just a few steps above him though. Sorry. Well, it makes us look a little better, I guess. But, you know, I was a pretty good person is what I thought. I you know, I tried to help people. I was a good friend. I loved my family. I'd even do some volunteer work now and then. I, I was a pretty good person. Now, sure, I lied to my parents occasionally, and I was, at the time, was drinking underage and probably too much. And, um, you know, I did things like that, but I wasn't as bad as a lot of my friends or, you know, other people I would compare myself to. When I would compare myself to others, I felt like I was doing pretty good, so I'd get irritated. Don't call me a sinner is kind of how I felt. And, um, also, somewhere along the way, I figured out this idea for myself that if um, it was like a scale, that if really my good deeds could just outweigh my bad deeds, that then I'd be okay, I'd be set, as long as the, the scale tipped towards the good deeds. But one day, a friend of mine sat me down and, uh, to explain some truths to me out of the Bible, out of God's Word. And uh, she, God really used one particular verse to open my eyes to the truth that I am, that we all are sinners. And it's a verse in Romans. It's Romans 3:23, And it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, the standard isn't how you compare to others. The standard is how we compare to God's holiness, the glory of God. And we all fall short. We fall way short of that. Maybe you've heard the example before of... Uh, that illustrates sin this way. You know, if I stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon, I could run and jump out, you know, probably, I don't know, maybe five feet before I plummet to my death. And maybe you could come along, because probably everybody could jump farther than me, and run and jump out a few more feet before you plummet to your death. I think the world record for a long jump is like over 29 feet. So the long jumper could go out and, you know, get 29, 30 feet before plummeting. But the point is, um, that we can compare ourselves to other people, and yeah, I may be able to jump farther than so-and-so, um, but the standard is God's holiness, which in this example is the vast expanse of the Grand Canyon. And it doesn't matter how far you can jump. If you break the world record, that's great. You are never going to be able to jump to the other side. That is how holy God is. His holiness is so far beyond what we can even imagine, and that's the standard. That's how we sin is determined. Do we miss that standard of holiness? Uh, someone mentioned it earlier when you were talking about um, what is uh, throwing out some adjectives to describe what sin is. And uh, the actual Hebrew word uh, that talks about sin uh, over 250 times just in the Old Testament uh, alone um, really paints a picture that it's just missing the mark. And uh, in Judges chapter 20, uh, verse 16, it says this, uh, among these soldiers, there were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. I'm left-handed. That's good. Left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Okay, that's pretty tight. 700 guys could huck a stone at a piece of hair, and they would not miss. But if they did miss, this is what the Hebrew word uh, would be, is 
they would be missing the mark. The standard was to take the stone, throw it at a piece of hair, and if they missed, they would be in sin. So sin ultimately is this idea there is a standard, there is a mark. And anytime we miss that mark, we miss that standard, um, we're in sin. Uh, Proverbs uh, chapter 19, uh, verse 2 says it this way, It's not good to have zeal without knowledge, nor to be hasty and miss the way. Sin. There is a way that we have been called to live and called to walk, called to be. And when we are chasing our own standard, uh, that's sin. We're missing the mark or we're missing the way. Um, a friend of mine explained it to me also this way, that the Greek word for sin originally meant, um, was an archery term that meant to miss the mark of perfection or to miss hitting exactly in the bullseye. And um, so once I under started to understand what sin really meant, that it meant to miss the mark of God's standard, of his holiness, of his perfection, it was a lot easier and I was able to admit that I was a sinner. And that revelation in itself helped me to see, begin to see my need for God. You know, later as I began to grow in my relationship with God, I also began to see how that whole scale idea, having my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, how that was so far off uh, from reality. You know, committing just one sin makes you a sinner. No amount of good deeds can earn you God's favor. Just one sin causes you to fall completely short of God's standard. And sin, really, it all boils down to, if you think of any sin in your life, it can all be boiled down to just not trusting God and deciding to walk independently of him, walk your own way, which is disobeying God and um, even rebelling against God. Now, before I had a relationship with God, I was, you know, I was sinning all the time, although I wouldn't have called it sin because I didn't understand that word, and I certainly wouldn't have thought of it as rebelling against God. You know, I, I knew when I was doing something wrong, and I knew right from wrong and often chose to do the wrong thing. But I wasn't, I wasn't consciously rebelling against God. In fact, I wasn't even thinking about God. God, a lot of times, was not even on my radar screen. Um, but God made us, and he created us, and each of us, he placed a conscience so that at some level, all of us know when we know right from wrong and know when we're choosing wrong. Even if we don't know what God's laws are, God's commands are, we know when we're doing what's right or what's wrong. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called Mere Christianity, and in, he, in it he describes this idea as kind of the law of nature. His quote says this, These then are the two points I wanted to make. First, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not, in fact, behave that way. They know the law of nature. They break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. So whether you know God or not, and whether you're choosing to consciously rebel against him or not, we're all guilty of sinning against God, missing his standard of holiness. We're guilty of acting differently even than our conscience just tells us to act. God makes it clear that we are all sinners. It's, um, who cares? <laughs> Let me just put it that way. So what? If you've come to a place, and I hope you can come to a place and say, okay, I, I would admit, I would confess, I would declare, if God has a standard of perfection, holiness, per, um, uh, perfection, uh, then I've clearly fallen short, at least once, if not more than once, um, in my lifetime. 
hopefully all of us would actually be okay to say, yeah, if, if sin is perfection, I've missed that standard, I've missed the mark, I've missed the way. But ultimately, you have to now ask the question, so what? What does it matter? What does ultimately sin, why does it matter if I have sin in my life or don't have sin in my life? Something very significant happened back in the garden. Those two young kids who made a decision to say we're going to do our own thing, go our own way, they died. They died that day in the garden. Now, if you know the story, you're like, wait a minute, they didn't physically die. I'm like, Adam lived for at least 900 more years, and um, I'm not sure if Eve would have wanted to hang out with him for that many more years, but Adam, at least, lived for 900 more years. So there was not a physical death. But what happened back in the garden is that there was a spiritual death. These two young kids, when they decided to sin, rebel, reject God, not trust God, as Kyle was saying, they spiritually died that day. They once had a perfect relationship. They were completely connected uh, to the creator of the universe. But that day when they made the decision, um, they died, spiritually speaking. They were separated now from God. Isaiah 59 says it like this, or 58 says it like this. No, this is 59. Uh, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short. This is 59 chapter, uh, verse 1 and 2. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that you will not hear. I want you to hear that. Your sins have separated you from your God. Sin cuts me off from God. It's not like the sin of humanity. It's my sin. It's my sin that cuts me off from God. It's not just sin in general, but it's this, my personal sin, my personal rebellion uh, against God that ultimately cuts me off and spiritual death. So here's a tough question for you I wanted to ask you is, would you agree that you are spiritually dead, separated from God because of sin? You don't have to raise your hands. You don't even nod your heads. Would you agree that because of sin, and not just in the world, your sin, that you are spiritually dead, separated, cut off from God. Now, I know a lot of us would just don't like thinking about it like that because, well, I'm not that big of a sinner. And it just goes back to this question of, I'm not, I'm not the axe murderer. I'm not the child rapist. I'm not a terrorist. I'm just ultimately not that bad of a person. And as Kyla mentioned before, it, who are you comparing yourself to? If any of us were to look at God and see his, his beauty, his perfection, his holiness, his righteousness, would any of us say, yeah, I look like that. I got that going on. I've accomplished that. I've arrived there. Most of us would look in the mirror and say, I am not him. I am not him. Isaiah is a prophet in uh, the Old Testament, and um, uh, Isaiah had, if anyone could have just, I don't know, boasted or been impressed with himself, kind of flexed his spiritual muscles and said, look at me, I've got it going on, I'm a prophet of God. He talks to me, I talk to people, they do what I say. He could have been pretty impressed with himself. But Isaiah, in chapter 6 of his book, Isaiah has an incredible uh, interaction with God where he sees God 
And this is Isaiah's response in uh, chapter 6, verse 5. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. If you actually come face to face and see who God is, I hope you will catch a glimpse of yourself and declare, I'm not him. I am not him. I, he is so other than who I am. So does sin, spirit, go back to the question, would you agree that you are spiritually dead, separated from God because of sin? If you compare yourself to a terrorist, maybe you might feel a little bit better about yourself. But if you actually just put your eyes and looked at who God is, I hope all of us would be in this place to say, I'm not him. I am not God. I am so other, I am not even close to who God is. Sin not only separates us from God, but it, it devastates the image of God. In the, uh, we've been created to bear his image. But sin devastates that it mars the image of God within each of us. And sin takes us further and further away from who we were created to be. If we have sin in our life, you are not living the life that God has called you to live. You're not living the life that God has invited you, to purposed you to live. You're settling for something far less than what God has for you. I wrote it down like this. Sin will take you down a road you never wanted to go, down and it will keep you there longer than you ever wanted to stay, and it will always cost you more than you were ever willing to pay. That's the invitation of sin. It takes you to places you never ultimately wanted to go. It will keep you there longer than you ever wanted to stay. And it will always, always cost you more than you were ever willing to pay. I talk about, um, I meet with lots of different couples. Um, some who are just trying to figure out if they're supposed to be together. Some who are uh, engaged. And I say this tongue in cheek, but I always say them very firmly. If you want to uh, ruin your relationship, invite sexual sin into your relationship. And they're like, really? We can do that? And uh, I'm like, no, idiot. <laughs> if you want to destroy a relationship, invite sin in. What seems so appealing, I'm just being affectionate. I'm just caring for her, caring from him. It will take you, if you walk down that road, it will take you to a place in that relationship you never wanted to go. It will keep you there longer than you ever wanted to stay. And the price will be more than you were ever willing to pay because that relationship will not stand. It will be a re relationship that ultimately would be destroyed because of sin. So the big deal about sin, uh, as Kyle and I have been thinking about it and uh, just our, our own study of Scripture, is really twofold. It kills us spiritually speaking, meaning it separates us from God. And the second thing is, it devastates us. It gets us so far away from who God has created us to be. Uh, a few weeks from now, uh, when we talk about tribal, uh, created for community, we're going to talk about sin and the impact that it has on this entire uh, community. But uh, for tonight, we just wanted to finish with um, asking the question, if the reality that spiritually speaking we are dead, separated from God, what must I do to reconnect? Literally to be born again, to be made alive. 
Isaiah gives us uh, this answer in chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal. This is an angel type of figure. Live coal in his hand, which he had taken with uh, tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin has been atoned for. So as we ask now, trying to finish with this question, what must I do? If I am in a place where I can own up and say, yeah, I've sinned, which means I'm spiritually dead, spiritually separated, disconnected, not in right relationship with God, and ultimately my life is being devastated by this, what must I do? The first answer uh, is this. Allow God to do for you what only he can, provide atonement for your sin. Only God can bring you back into right relationship. You can waste your life trying to figure out how to get back to God, trying to be good enough. I don't know, try and earn it enough, give good money, be nice to people. You can waste your life trying to do those things, or you can allow God to do for you what only he can do. Isaiah, when he realized he was sinful, and he saw that he was now separated from God, God did for him, he atoned for his sin, took away the guilt of his uh, sin. First John chapter 2, this is what Jesus, by the way, has done for us. This is the gospel. Jesus did for you, for me, what I could not do, what you could ultimately not do. First John makes it very clear exactly what Jesus did. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. I love that challenge. You don't have to. You don't have to make the decision to do your own thing, go your own way, be your own person. You don't have to. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. I say this every week when we take communion. Jesus lived a sinless life. He died a very painful death as a substitute for me and for you. And an amazing thing happened on that third day where he was raised from the dead, thus conquering sin, thus conquering uh, Satan, and thus conquering death. That those who would place their trust in him, what he has done, sin would be covered. Sin would be uh, atoned for. So the reality is, you and I have a choice that we need to make. And this is one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament because it confronts you and I with this question. Will you choose life or will you choose death? I love God that he loves us enough to give us a free will to make a decision, to make a choice. Will you choose life? Ezekiel chapter 18 says it like this. Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you, each one according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Can anyone relate with that, where you just feel like sin is ultimately the thing that is tripping you up again and again and again. It's been your downfall. Rid yourselves of all of the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. If the reality is that sin separates us from God, spiritually speaking, we're dead. You have a choice. Will you choose to live? Will you choose life 
or will you settle for a life where you're spiritually dead, spiritually separated from God, both now and for eternity? Let me just ask this question. Why would you make that choice? If you can choose life or death, why, in, why would you choose death? The story of Scripture is a story that says choose life. Choose life. Romans 8 verse 13 says, For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. One more verse I'll share with this. This is under the, the, the heading of what am I supposed to do? I've realized I've sinned. Let God be the one who will atone for sin in the person of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 uh, verse 1 and then verse 4 and 5 says this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in, in sins. It is by grace that you have been saved. Our sin separates us from God, but your sin will not stop God from loving you. I want you to hear that. Your sin will not stop God from loving you. How can I say that? Because in his great love for you, he said, I don't want you to be spiritually dead. Jesus Christ, my son, will awaken your heart, will awaken your soul so that you would live. And if we make this decision, the decision to choose life, and we decide to trust in Jesus to be the one to pay the penalty for our sins, we receive God's forgiveness and we receive the gift of eternal life, life forever. And we can begin a real relationship with God. You know, and when we do that, all of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. But our sin doesn't just disappear out of our life when you decide to become a Christian, when you decide to follow Christ. Your sin problem doesn't just go away. We all continue to sin. So what do we do now? What do we do now that we've made this decision um, to follow Christ? Now what do we do when we become aware of areas of sin in our life that maybe we didn't even know of before? Or what do we do when we even deliberately choose to disobey God? Well, it's simple, really. It's not that it's necessarily easy, but it's not really complicated. First, what we need to do is we need to confess. We need to confess our sin, which God already knows about it anyway. What it means to confess is just to agree with God that what we've done is wrong, that we have fallen short of his standards of, of holiness. Then we need to repent or turn away, to completely turn from our sin. And in some cases, we need to make restitution. We may need to make things right. If we've stolen something, we need to give it back. If we've slandered someone, we need to tell the truth and make that right. And then we need to receive God's forgiveness and, and, tr and just trust him to empower us to change, to live differently. You know, when we become Christians, when we decide to trust in Christ to pay for our sins, the other thing, another thing that God gives us is his Holy Spirit to live inside of us. One of the roles the Holy Spirit plays in the life of a believer is to convict us of sin, to make us aware of ways um, that we're living that are not in line with God's standards. You know, uh, God knows your heart. He knows your thoughts. He sees everything. Nothing is hidden from him. And the Holy Spirit will bring conviction to areas of sin in your life. And if we don't confess those sins and deal with them, what ends up happening is our relationship with God, our fellowship with God is interrupted. You know, our, as when we trust in Christ, our position 
with Christ. Our relationship with him is secure. He promises he will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. But sin in our lives, what it does is they're like bricks. Unconfessed sin in our lives just starts building this wall between us and God and interrupting our fellowship with him. There's a verse in Psalm 32, um, verses 1 through 5, says this, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. This was written by uh, King David, and David was someone who had, I mean, he'd really, you know, when we compare ourselves to others, you, would, you could compare yourself to David and come out okay a lot of the time. He'd committed adultery, then he had the, the woman's wife, uh, or the woman's husband killed and tried to cover it up, and um, he was, in this psalm, you see that he was keeping his sin silent. He's trying to cover it up, and what he felt was God's hand heavy on him. He felt that conviction of the Holy Spirit. But as, as he acknowledges his sin and he confesses it to God, it's not that he's telling God something new. He's just agreeing with God that what he's done is wrong. He experiences God's forgiveness. And if you've ever tried to cover up an area of sin in your life, you'll, you'll know what it feels like likely to uh, have God's hand heavy upon you. In fact, I just had this pleasant experience a few months ago at Life Group. My Life Group girls will get to relive this wonderful occasion with me now as I tell the story. But So what had happened was a few weeks earlier I'd mentioned to some women in my life group that I wanted them to hold me accountable, help me hold, hold me accountable to something I felt like God was calling me to do. I'd met this lady at my kids gymnastics class and I thought um, I really need to call her. I need to befriend her. I felt like God wanted me to connect with this woman. And so I'd asked girls in my life group to hold me accountable to that. And so they asked me once or twice and you know I never did. Never called her. So one night we're sitting down, we're all got our Bibles open, ready to dig into life group, and uh, one of the women asked me, hey, Kyla, before we start, so did you ever call that lady? And I hadn't, so I was like, no, I didn't call her. And it would have been so beautiful had I just stopped there. But when that came out of my mouth, it just sounded so unspiritual. No, I hadn't called her. I mean, it was a simple thing to do. It wasn't that big a deal. I should be setting an example. I should have called her. And so... All of a sudden, all these, before I could even stop it, these lies just start spewing out of my mouth. No, it was because Caden, our youngest son, you know, he, he got the phone. He deleted her number out of my phone. I just don't have any way of calling her, you know. I, I mean, faster than I could even think, I'm just lying and lying and lying, trying to cover up that I hadn't called this lady. Not that they really cared probably anyway. But before, you know, it just kept going, and I just couldn't stop it. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, so let's start Bible study. You know, and so we start, and um, of course the topic, we were going through the book of James at that time, and so the topic was on something like, you know, honesty or confess your sins to one another or something very appropriate. And I'm trying to continue to lead this Bible study, and I mean, I just feel like my face must have turned 15 shades of red. I'm sweating. I can't, I can't concentrate. Everything people are sharing is directly like God's like, Tell them that you sinned. You know, I just felt this. I felt God's hand heavy upon me. And so, you know, for, we all let it go on for a few minutes, rationalizing about, no, God, I'll, I'll send him an email later. I'll, I'll text her later. She'll, I'll tell her, I'll come clean later. Not now. I'm, 
the life group leader. I have to look spiritual. Like, I have it together. And, but I could not go on. God's hand was like, no, you're going to do this now. And so I had to stop Bible study and confess that now I hadn't even listened to anything anyone was saying because I was totally wrapped up in this lie that I told. And so I told them, listen, I lied. I didn't call the lady. I have her number. It's right there on my phone. Caden didn't mess up the phone. You know, whatever. I had to confess it. I had to acknowledge my sin to the Lord and to the women in my life group. Um, so hopefully you won't have it that bad. But that's what it feels like when the Lord's hand is heavy on you. 1 John 1.9 says it like this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That as we confess our sins, just agree with God about the sin in our lives, he is faithful. Our sins are already forgiven by the work that Jesus has done on the cross if we have received that. But we need to confess our sins to break down that wall between us and God so that we can experience and really feel God's forgiveness. You know, one note about confession is that we can confess it all to God. There's nothing he doesn't already know about. And even better is there's nothing that he won't forgive. There is no sin that we can commit. There's no, nothing we can say, nothing we can go through, nothing that we can do that is beyond the reach of God's forgiveness, beyond his, the reach of his mercy and his grace. Um, his grace is inexhaustible. No sin is too bad that Jesus' blood can't cover it. What do you do? You realize you're, you've sinned, you've fallen short, you missed the mark, you missed the way. Uh, let God do for you what only God can do, atone for sin in the person, the life, uh, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, confess your sin. Confess your sin to, uh, to God and uh, to your life group if you're ever in that situation again. Um, and Kyla mentioned a, a word also of just repent and repent. Just It's a turning. Uh, we can only be walking one of two directions. We're either walking away from God or walking towards God. And uh, if you've got sin, if you're continuing to dabble in sin again and again and again, you're not walking towards God. Repentance is a change of heart, change of mind, and a change of direction of your life. If I'm walking that way, I'm making uh, a heart change, a mind change, I'm going to start walking this way towards God. This is a great proverb. Uh, it will gross you out, but it's in the Bible. Proverbs 26, verse 11. If you've ever seen a dog do this, you're like, oh, nasty. As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. If you have a dog, if you've ever seen a dog, they throw up and they start licking it up. And they think it's the greatest thing ever. And you're like, what are you doing? That's how sin works. God is saying, what are you doing? Why do you continue to lick it up? Why do you continue to go back and revisit this? Why do you settle for vomit on the ground when I have so much more for you? King David was not perfect, but he did not shack up with some other guy's wife again. He did not have ultimately that husband killed and then try and cover it up. He repented from his sin. He did not repeat the folly his sinful ways. What I love about the gospel is it gives us hope for change. Because of Jesus, who has made me alive, reconnected me with God, I have hope that I can change, make, that God can change in my life. That I don't have to be that angry, bitter, anxious, worried, control freak anymore. Why? Because I can repent of that. I'm not that person anymore. I'm not walking down that direction. 
I'm not that same person who was living a life saying, I just want to make a big deal about me. I want to make every decision and everyone else, best I can, worship me. That's such a small life. If you are living at the center of your universe, do you know how big your universe is? It's tiny. What I love about the gospel is it gives me hope for change. It gives me joy where I'm at, but it gives me hope to say, I'm not done with you, Michael. Go ahead, last one. Well, not only should we confess and repent, but we also need to choose to live differently. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We need to be imitators of God. If we're going to strive to be holy, and we ought to, God commands us to be holy. We can't live life as we always have. We can't just default to the way we've always done things. It just will lead to more sin. Instead, we need to imitate one who is holy, Jesus. Jesus gave us an example of what it looks like to live a holy life in this world in a human body. He did it without sin. We need to study him. We need to emulate him. We need to watch how he lived, how he treated others, and then we need to go and do the same. You know, on our own, we could never do this completely, but the beautiful thing is that once we accept Jesus as our Savior, he sends his spirit to live in us, and if we allow him, he will live through us the way we ought to live, the life we ought to live, a life of love, a life of holiness. Let's do it better. Let's choose to live better, to give up sin, and to allow Jesus to live through us. Let's use our words to, to build people up, not to destroy and to devastate. Let's use our hands to create, to serve, to help others rather than to just cling on to the things that will only benefit us. Let's be image bearers of God who imitate God. I've got sin in my life. What do I do? Let God do for you, for me, what only he can do. Atonement is Jesus Christ. Receive, accept, embrace what, what Jesus has done. Kyla talked about confessing, uh, confessing sin to God, to others, if need be, and then uh, repenting, a change of lifestyle. I'm not walking in the way uh, where it's about me. I'm going to walk in a way that is going to be uh, about God. And I love how Kyla was just talking about it. Uh, just do it better. <laughs> Let's do it better. What a challenging verse in Ephesians 5. Be an imitator of God. If you think of all the things in your life that you imitate, anything short of imitating God is... You're settling. Keep your standard as I'm going to imitate who I know God to be as he's revealed himself in the person uh, of Jesus Christ. Tonight as uh, we would uh, close and get ready to uh, celebrate uh, communion, I, uh, I hope that uh, your heart is feeling that God's tugging on your heart, uh, that you've come to a place where you say, yeah, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. Because of that, I'm spiritually separated from God. If you're in a place where you have embraced, accepted Jesus Christ, then this time of communion, let it be the most joyful thing you can do by just saying thank you for doing for me what I could not do on my own. And if you're in a place where you say, tonight I've missed the mark, I've 
I've missed the way. And you have not yet embraced Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. I want to finish with uh, Paul's charge, his, his plea uh, to you, to me, to humanity. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is another way of a man standing, kneeling before people saying, I am begging you. You were not created to be separated from God. I implore you, I beg you, get right with God. Be reconciled, be in right relationship with him. Do not settle for a life of sin that will not only spiritually disconnect us now, but for eternity. The consequences of sin, if you try and, and do it on your own, is a spiritual separation for eternity in a place called hell. But there is another home called heaven. I implore you, I beg you, if you have not been made right with God, if you have not been reconciled, do that now. Embrace what Jesus Christ has done for you. And I'll go back. If you have made that decision, would you be someone who would proclaim that, who would preach that, would care enough about humanity to say, would you be reconciled with God, the God who has created you in his image to be in relationship with him now and forever? Would you declare that message to your family, to your friends, to your coworkers, to your neighbors, to people in your community? Would you be a reconciler? You're his ambassador. You have a message to proclaim, to preach to declare you have a life to live and a life that says it's not going to be about me. Would you be reconciled to God? Father God, I thank you that um, you loved us way too much to give up on us. And when that young couple, Adam and Eve, made a decision back in Eden, You set in motion a plan to redeem and restore and reconcile humanity back to yourself. And it was at a great cost of your own son, Jesus Christ. God, I give you thanks that because of Jesus, we can be made right with you. We can have peace with you. We are saved from having to pay the penalty of sin, which is death. God, I just I give you thanks for that. Father, as we would come tonight to finish our time by worshiping you, letting you know that we love you, and celebrating communion as we do every week, we just want to say thank you for what you have done for us. We could not do it on our own. For those of you here tonight who have not been reconciled, made right with God, I implore you, I beg you, make that decision tonight to be made right with God. Let the confession of your heart be that I've sinned, I've missed the way, I've missed the mark, 
and I'm going to trust Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, to be the, the person that makes me right with God, where I have forgiveness of sins because I'm trusting Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. Would you let that be your prayer? Father, if tonight in the midst of this conversation, uh, hearts are heavy with sin that we need to repent from. God, would you give us the strength by your Holy Spirit, give us the courage not to return to our vomit, but set our hearts, our minds, our feet in a new direction, a direction that is walking with you, connected with you, hearing your voice, having true oneness with you, our Creator. God, give us courage as a community to turn from ourselves and to turn to you. We can't do this on our own and we can't do it in our own strength. So Father, please, do for us what we cannot do for ourselves and we give you thanks. We give you thanks for these things. We give you thanks for the gospel. We give you thanks for Jesus Christ and for what he's done for us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Genesis is a ministry of Hope Christian Church. We invite you to find out more by visiting our website at genesisthejourney.com.